David said, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits, who forgives you of all your sins, heals you from all infirmities, who crowns your life with loving kindness and renews your strength like the eagles. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. That was really good. Hey, at all of our campuses, let's put our hands together and thank those who've led us in music this morning. That was great. Super. Now, uh, today I want to give you a little disclaimer up front. I just want you to know that uh, today is not much of a sermon. It's not going to be much of a sermon. If you came looking for a sermon, I apologize in advance. Uh, like I said, we were supposed to close out our series uh, at the movies, but I had some things on my mind and in my heart, and this just seemed like, uh, for some of those things, the best weekend uh, to talk about it. Uh, because every once in a while as a pastor, you know, I get some time to think about, you know, hey, this is where we are as a church. This is where the world is. This is where the culture is. This is where the country is. And uh, sometimes I just really feel like I need to, to say some things that sometimes it just doesn't fit in with what we originally planned. And I'm glad we have a church where we can just scrap the plan and uh, do what we feel like we need to do. So with that said, uh, here on the weekend after the 4th of July, I want to begin uh, with a little bit of history. Uh, beginning with September 16th, 1620. And on September the 16th in 1620, there was a group of about 100 people, we call them pilgrims, uh, who were strengthened by faith and they were united by a common desire uh, to leave England in search of liberty, in search of a place in the new world where they could worship according to their own beliefs, without interference from the crown, without interference from parliament, without interference from the state. And so they got on board a ship, and you remember this from childhood, they got on board a ship called the Mayflower, and they made a very dangerous track across the Atlantic Ocean, uh, which most of the time took no less than two months. And then on November the 21st, 1620, they landed off the shores of Cape Cod, and they named that place Plymouth. We know it as Plymouth, Massachusetts, because Plymouth was the city that they left in England. And so they landed there, coming to the new world to look for a place where they could worship their God with freedom. Freedom from interference from the state, crown, or parliament. Now, here's something interesting, may not be interesting to you, and I think that everybody should love history, and if they don't love history, they should just at least be a student of it, because uh, history is past instruction that gives us future wisdom. That, that's what history is, so we all, we all need to know some history, and this will make sense in just a moment for what I wanna talk to us about today. Uh, this is interesting. 20% of all Americans can trace back their genetic heritage uh, to the people who got off the boat in Plymouth, Massachusetts in 1620, the people on the Mayflower. 20% of Americans can trace back their heritage to that group of people. So for some of you who think you have nobody to be proud of in your family, congratulations. <laughs> you do. And you came to church today and you found out you're a winner. Your family does have a winner back there. And, and so 20% of us probably can go back and we can place uh, one of our cousins or grandfathers or grandmothers there on the boat. Now, the first generation that got off the boat there in Plymouth, Massachusetts, fast forward seven generations. Fast forward seven generations. And seven generations after the Mayflower landed in the New World, uh, the colonists, when compared to their counterparts back in England, were two inches taller. Uh, they were twice as likely to make it to 50 years old and they were twice as rich as their counterparts back in England and they were taxed at a lower rate. So they're richer than the people in England and they're taxed lower than the people in England and uh, you know, that never works out well uh, for relations between those two parties. People who make less and are taxed more and the people who make more and they're taxed less. And it's almost like, you know, we're still talking about the same things hundreds of years later. But in 1764, as these tensions began to build between the colonists and the English crown, uh, the British throne looked into the colonies and they saw all this wealth, this wealth that really wasn't expected to be there. They knew that there were going to be resources, but they had no idea that the wealth was going to be so enormous. And so the British crown said, hey, this is a great opportunity for us to raise revenues for the empire. And raising revenues meant raising taxes. And so, you know, you may remember this from school. There was the Sugar Act, you know, it was a tax on sugar. There was the Stamp Act, you know, there was a tax on all these official documents. And, and it was just one tax after the other. There was a tax on tea. 
And, and with all of these taxes, uh, there was a growing resentment among the colonists because of this thing that you, you remember hearing about in history class, taxation without what? Representation. So the colonists were taxed, but they were not represented in parliament back in England. And so this was a problem for them. And so tensions kept building and kept building and kept building. And then finally, tensions erupted in 1770 on March 5th in what is called in history the Boston Massacre. It's when a group of British redcoats, British soldiers, fired their guns into a mob of unarmed citizens. And there were people who were killed. And, and this, was, this was something huge. I mean, this, this was something that you know, people would never forget about because Paul Revere, who was a Boston silversmith, he would actually engrave an interpretation, a picture of this event that he called the Bloody Massacre. And then he took advantage of the Postmaster General at that particular time, who was Benjamin Franklin, who had developed all of these lines of communication among the colonists so that they could correspond with each other in pretty rapid ways. And so he engraved a picture of the Boston Massacre. He called it the Bloody Massacre. And here was the picture that he made of the Redcoats firing into a group of citizens and some, you know, they're on the ground dead. And people all in the colonies heard about this. They actually heard about it in the colonies before news got back to England later that year. And so then as this tension begins to build and build and build in December of 1773, uh, there was what is perhaps the greatest known protest in all of history, uh, what we call the Boston Tea Party, when protesters would dump about 342 chests of English tea into Boston Harbor because of the tea on tax. And, and in today's economy, that would have been worth about $1.7 million. And so it was a big big statement for those protesters to make about taxes to the crown and to parliament back in England. Now, as all of this stuff is going on, and, and again, you'll understand why I'm telling you this in just a moment, because this is important, especially on this weekend, uh, when we've been thinking about this and hearing about things like this. Less than two years later, tensions would reach a tipping point. On April 19th, 1775, in what is called the Battle of Lexington and Concord, uh, British redcoats were on their way from Boston to Concord because they were going to try to confiscate uh, the guns that had been um, acquired by the rebel militia. Uh, some of the rebel militia heard about this. Paul Revere and some of his friends went riding ahead of the redcoats and they began to tell people, you know, the British are coming, the British are coming, get ready, we're going to intercept them. And so that's exactly what happened. And the two groups, the rebels and the British, they met on Old North Bridge in Concord. And nobody knows who fired first, you know, different people say different things, but it became known as the shot that was heard around the world. And that marked the beginning, that particular battle that day marked the beginning of America's war for independence. Fighting had started between the two. Now, as fighting started and the tensions automatically, you know, are elevated and escalating day by day by day. In June of the following year, in 1776, a committee of five was charged, charged with drafting a document that would be a declaration of intent of the 13 colonies concerning England. And three of the five on the committee you've heard about, Ben Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, and John Adams, and so they were charged to write a document that says this is what the 13 colonies are deciding to do concerning the crown and concerning the empire. Two weeks later, after this committee got together and started writing, on June 29, 45 British naval ships arrive off of Staten Island with another 350 British naval ships racing across the Atlantic. King George had a plan. And King George's plan was this, I will terrify the colonies into submission. He had no expectation that he would inspire them to a revolution. Three days later on July the 2nd, the Second Continental Congress met in emergency session with 50 delegates and they took up a debate that no one would have ever anticipated them having. They were debating whether or not they would break from England. For some in the beginning, they considered it treason against the British crown. They considered it treason of the worst form. But after much debate and after much discussion and after a lot of backroom conversations, a vote was taken and a unanimous vote to break from England. Only one abstained and that was New York. And so they declared their independence as 13 unified states 
against perhaps one of the greatest empires in all of the world. And that happened on July the 4th, 1776. The words that they penned, and primarily Thomas Jefferson, the words that they penned and adopted would become some of the most recognizable and consequential words in the English language and in world history. And here's a portion of it. This is how they started. The unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America, and then they go on to say, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now we've heard these words since we were in school. And every once in a while we hear, we hear them quoted in a political speech or we see them you know, quoted in a book. But this was the first time with such specificity that these words were actually thought to be written down. Like we're gonna actually write these words down. And people had insinuated this and people had said, you know, in a roundabout way, some of the statements that these guys wrote down and adopted, but nobody had ever thought to write these words down in quite that clarity before. And so those were the words of the Declaration of Independence. They go on and they say that to secure these rights, life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Now, let me say a word about folks who know history and know where we are as a country. Some of those words, in the moment that they were written, in the moment that they were adopted, the founding fathers of the nation, they did not fully live up to those words. The founding fathers were imperfect men, just like we are imperfect men and women. They were marked by their experiences of their life and they were marked by the ideas of their time. They said that all men were created equal, but they fully didn't understand exactly what they were saying, at least in the practical sense. They said that all men were created equal, but at that moment in time and even in the subsequent years following, all men were not treated equal. It would take our nation a long time to catch up with that extraordinary idea. And in many ways, we're still trying to catch up to that extraordinary idea that all people are created equal. But these words, their words, would lay a foundation for a pursuit of what they called a more perfect union. And their words, though they did not live up to them, their words were ahead of their time. They were casting a vision for a country that could be and a country that should be for generations to come. America wins its independence. A decade or so later, the U.S. Constitution is written, ratified, and enacted. And the top, you know, the first 10 amendments to the Constitution are called the what? Talk to me. The Bill of Rights. And some of you, you know some of the Bill of Rights, some of you don't know, but, but here, here are your Bill of Rights, my Bill of Rights, our Bill of Rights as Americans. You have the freedom of speech. You say what you want to say. I was in a communist country uh, just in the past few weeks, and uh, there they don't get to say everything they want to say. Even our northern neighbors in Canada, they don't get to say everything they think they ought to be able to say. In Europe, there is a big discussion going on right now about exactly how far does free speech go and how, who gets to decide what free speech looks like and sounds like. And so people who have freedom of speech oftentimes don't have it to the extent that we have it. Freedom of speech, freedom of press. James Madison said the freedom of the press is the one right that guarantees all the other rights. The freedom of assembly, you didn't have to have a permit to be here today. You didn't have to have a permit to be part of the church. You didn't have to pay a fee. That's not true in many places. You have the freedom of religion, the freedom to bear arms, to due process, to a jury trial, to illegal search and seizure. The government just can't come in and take what they want from you that belongs to you. You have protection against cruel and unusual punishment and against the quartering of soldiers. You don't even know what that means, but don't worry about it. All right, that was written at a different time, but if you ever get asked to quarter soldiers, know that you have a right concerning quartering soldiers. You learned about it first at church. So these are our rights. Now, lots of people talk about the First Amendment. Some people, you know, they love to debate the Second Amendment and what that means. And we're still trying to, to talk about what does that mean for us in the 21st century. And some say it means the same thing that meant in the first century. And some say, no, there's a new interpretation. You know, things can't mean today what they meant then. And so we need to continue to evolve. And, and that's a worthy discussion to be had by thoughtful, educated people. But 
One of the great amendments that perhaps you never thank God for and that you're not grateful for and you never quote is the Ninth Amendment. And you should know what the Ninth Amendment says. This is what the Ninth Amendment says. The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. So well, what does that mean? Well, the founding fathers, they took their cues from Bible writers and they just tried to write some things sometimes that we would have no idea what it meant. Now, there's really smart people who debate what this means, but basically, you know, a large consensus is that here's what they were saying. Not all of our rights are written down. That just because they didn't write it down as a right doesn't mean that it doesn't exist for you as a right. So you have rights that they didn't think to write down. So the founding fathers, they put all this together. And we could talk about, you know, how many of them were really Christian and what their faith was really like. And those are all great discussions to be had for another day. But there are some things that they believed that was absolutely clear. They believed that rights were not given by the crown, but, by, but rights were given by God. That's what they believed. The second thing they believed was this, that those rights are inalienable, that they cannot be denied and they cannot be taken away by man or institution because they were not given by man or institution. They believe that every person, every person, even though it's taken our country some time to get to this place, but every person deserves the pursuit of life, liberty, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And, and again, there's debate about what does that mean? And then they agreed that the security for these rights are provided for by a government of the people, by the people, for the people. But this is what I came here to talk about. With all of that in mind, with the history of our nation, the history of the nation that we love, a history of a nation that we are proud of, a history of the nation that, that we want to see, you know, have progress and advancement. The, the, the country that you love and that I love, that's the history of us as a country. But here's the thing that those who constructed the system that we live with today, here, here's the thing that they absolutely believed. And it's evident that they believed this. A people with rights, must also be a people with responsibility. If you have a people with rights, but you do not have a people with responsibility, sooner or later you will have people who forfeit their rights. Now, John Adams, John Adams did not own slaves. He was not for slavery. John Adams wrote a lot about exactly this type of government that we have and that they helped to construct. He said that the government that they constructed was meant for moral and religious people. That is to say that the type of government they put into place required a sense of collective moral consciousness and at least an idea of a divine accountability somewhere out there. They didn't even say what type of God, who the God was. They, they just believed that morality and a faith in God was absolutely crucial to the advancement of the government that they were forming. Now, this is a big deal because they understood that a liberty given by God requires accountability to God and responsibility to other people. Individual rights require personal responsibility. If I do not manage my personal rights with personal responsibility, people will get hurt. I may get hurt, you will get hurt, someone will get hurt if I have a personal right, but I do not manage it with personal responsibility. Here's what they believe. Liberty requires responsibility. Let's all just say that out loud. Liberty requires responsibility. This is a big deal. Now, this is not only true in governments. This is true in how you lead your homes. This is true in the rules that you have for your kids. This is true in your workplace manuals. This is true everywhere. Liberty, freedom, margin requires responsibility. Now, here's a follow-up truth. Whenever we think more about our liberty than our responsibility, we undermine liberty. Whenever you have someone who wants to talk about their freedom, talk about their freedom, talk about their freedom, but they ignore their personal responsibility, you have a person, you have a group of people who are actively undermining their freedom. They're actively undermining their liberty. Because without responsibility, without morality, liberty ends up destroying itself. Liberty without responsibility ends up being anarchy. Now, that's the story for us as Americans. That's the country we live in. That's the history in a big, broad stroke way of telling it. That's the history of our nation. That's what it means to be 
American. But here's my question. What does it mean to be a Christian in America? What does it look like to be a Christian in an overtly political America that's growing more polarized each and every day? What does it look like to be a Christian in America in an election year? What does it look like? What does it look like to be a Christian in America who calls themselves a Republican? What does it look like to be a Christian in America who calls themselves a Democrat or a Libertarian or Independent or non-affiliated? What does it look, to, look like to be a Christian in America who could care less about politics? What does it look like to be a Christian in America who's a part of the 1% or a part of the 99%? What does it look like to be Christian in America? Because we need to know the answer to that question. Perhaps more so in the season that we are in. We have a primary coming up this November. We have a general election in 2020, and I'm telling you, it's going to be a circus. And we need to know what it looks like to be Christian in America today. Now, when Jesus showed up, Jesus, this is important, and this may be offensive to some of you, but you just got to track with me. Jesus showed up, and he offered his followers a new citizenship and a new identity. He offered them a new citizenship into his kingdom and a new identity into his family. And he said, when you follow me, your citizenship is in my kingdom, a kingdom that is not of this world, and your identity is found most in my family. So your new citizenship and your new identity transcends all other citizenships and identities that you claim for yourself. And the reason that Jesus used these terms and the reason that Jesus taught these things and the New Testament would teach these things is because that Jesus followers are supposed to think as Jesus followers first and everything else second. That we think as Jesus followers first and not first as American. You think as a Jesus follower first and not as a Republican first or not as a Democrat or not pro this or anti this. You think as a Jesus follower first and you have to be intentional and I have to be intentional. We all have to be intentional to learn how to think as a Jesus follower first because that citizenship and that identity trumps and transcends all the others. Now, as Americans, we are a people of rights. We love our rights. We just got through celebrating our rights. But we do not have a holiday to celebrate responsibility. We do not have an ongoing robust discussion about what responsibility looks like when coupled to those rights. We have groups on both sides of the spectrum that all they wanna talk about is their right. Don't infringe on my right. Don't take away my right. No one, is as in, no one is as interested in responsibility as they are rights. As Americans, we have rights. But, but here's the thing. As Christians, we have responsibility. And our responsibility trumps sometimes, at times, our rights as Americans. Let me show you why this is important and let me tell you why we should talk about this. And if you find yourself getting offended, you should pay attention to why you're feeling a little uneasy or uncomfortable or a little whatever. Think about this. Just because it's a right doesn't make it right. Now, this is a big deal. Americans think about rights, but Christians, we just don't think about what's a right. We think about what's right. So we think it's Christian first. Just because it's a right doesn't make it right. And just because it's legal, it doesn't make it moral. Amen. So if you think it's an American first, or if you think in politics first, if you think nationality first, or ethnicity first, if you think in any of those other ways first, you can get wrong quick. It's not about having a right to do something. It's about whether something is the right thing to do. That's how Christians are supposed to think. It's not about asking the question, well, is it legal? No, that's not what a Christian asks. We're, we wanna know, is it moral? We wanna know, is it right? Rights are about how far I can go. How low can I go? How selfish can I be and not go to jail for it? 
Responsibility is what should I do? Not because of my rights, but because of what is right. Let me show you, let me, here's the tension. As an American, we all have the freedom to say what we want to say. You can say what you want to say. I can say what I want to say. But as a Christian, you have a responsibility not to do such a thing like that. Just because you think it doesn't mean you should say it. You know this already. But when we put the wrong hat on first, we go wrong. We go off the reservation. We make bad decisions. People get hurt real quick. We forfeit influence quickly. You have the right to free speech. But you shouldn't say everything you want to say. You have the right to post whatever you want to on social media. That's your right. But <laughs> I'm telling you, you shouldn't post everything that you want to post and do post on social media. Listen, we all have the right to sleep around. We can. You can sleep with whoever you want to. I can sleep with whoever I want to. We can sleep with as many people as we want to. We, we could have went out last night and slept with as many people as we are physically capable of sleeping with in one 24-hour period. That's your right. There's no law to enforce that. That's your right. The Christians have a greater responsibility. It's just not about what's a right. It's about what's right. Rights have to be coupled and handled with responsibility. The law tells you what you can't do, but Jesus showed up and he said, okay, here's the new law. The new law is love. The new ethic is love. Law says this is what you can't do, but love, Jesus shows us what we should do. So what does it look like to be Christian in America? Is it possible that sometimes being a good Christian will make you a bad Republican? Is it possible that sometimes being a good Christian may make you a bad Democrat or a bad Libertarian or a bad Independent, a bad Baptist, a bad Pentecostal? a bad Methodist, Presbyterian, Roman Catholic. Is it possible that being what it means to be Christian sometimes puts us at odds with some of the ways that we identify ourselves? Lucky for us, we're not the first to be in a predicament such, such as this. There were Christians who've gone before us and one such group, the apostle Peter wrote to them. He wrote a letter to them, a group of people who were living in first century Roman empire, the greatest empire at that particular time in the history of the world. Nero was the emperor. Nero, come on, Nero. Some of you had to hold your nose over the past couple of decades with who was in office. But I'm talking about Nero. I'm talking about a guy who hated Christians. He burnt them at the stake, thrown them, threw them into prison and had them killed. We're talking about a guy in a government that was not pro-faith in any stretch of the imagination. And so they were wrestling with, how do we be Christian in this? And the great news is what it took to be Christian then is the same thing that it takes to be Christian now. And whether you're in a communist country or a capitalistic country, a democratic republic, whether you're in some other style of government, it really doesn't matter. Being Christian has always meant the same things. It never changes and it never will. And so here's what Peter wrote to them about what it means to be Christian in their day and in our day. He said, he reminds them of this. He said, but you are us, them, we, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Again, he says, you have a citizenship that is greater than your citizenship as a Jewish person, as a part of the Roman Empire. You are a part of a priesthood, a holy nation. You are God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. He says, you are in the world with a mission on mission. You've been called out of darkness and now you are to show light to the people still trapped in darkness. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And this is so important because he says, don't ever forget Christian that you need mercy. You received mercy. And why would he remind us of this? Because when, when we are conscious of the fact when we are very conscious of the fact that we need mercy, it becomes, growing, it becomes growingly difficult to withhold mercy from somebody else. I am a sinner saved by grace. How can I withhold grace from other sinners? I am a man who needs mercy. 
Dear Lord, new mercies every day. How can I withhold mercy from anybody? That's his point. And so he says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, I'm telling you, we ought to read the scriptures because they are so relevant. Foreigners and exiles. We, we, we still use the foreigner. Foreigner. What's a foreigner? What's a person in exile? It's a person in a country that is not their country. And Peter says, you Christians, you are foreigners and you are exiles. What? What do you mean, Peter? What are you trying to say? He says, you're living in a land that is not truly your land. You are living in a world that is not truly your world. We used to sing this song in the church that I grew up in. It says, this old world is not my home. I'm what? I'm just a passing through. This is his point. He says, we live in this world, but we are not of this world. We are part of a kingdom that is not of this world. Yes, are we here? Yes, should we be invested while we're here? But yes, but don't forget ultimately your citizenship, your identity is in something far more than what you can put your hands on. You're like foreigners and exiles. You're living in a country where you have no citizenship. You're like Daniel who was living in Babylon. That wasn't his land, but what did he do? He decided that he wasn't gonna live by the values of the people that he was associated with and that he lived around. They did not share his idea of God nor his vision of morality, but yet he was in the midst of it. He thrived, he succeeded, and he climbed the ladder of success. This is what Peter's talking about. He says, you should be like Joseph in Egypt. Joseph in Egypt, they did not share his vision or his values. They did not share his God but he stayed true to his God. And even through ups and downs, he ends up serving as second in command as the prime minister of Egypt. He says, that's, that's who we are. That's, that's how we live. He says, we're like the captives who were taken off into exile in Babylon. And what did Jeremiah the prophet say to them in the Old Testament? He says, okay, here's what you should do. You should build houses where you are. So settle in, dig in. Even though you're living in a place that's not your home, your home's back there in Jerusalem and Israel, Build houses where you are. Pray for the prosperity of your city. Plant gardens, have kids, get them married, seek a better life. It's such a picture of who we are. We're foreigners and exiles. But what do we do? We build houses. We pray for the prosperity of the city because as the city prospers, as the country prospers, so does everybody else. We seek the benefit of others and we seek a better future. He says, you need to abstain, now, this is interesting, to abstain from the sinful desires which wage against your soul. He says, you're passing through, but you're fighting a battle while you're doing it. He, he says, you gotta abstain from these lusts, these sinful desires which war against your soul. You know why he said that? Because we all have sinful desires which war against our soul. Matter of fact, let's just, let's just see it, let's get honest. If you have sinful desires which war against your soul, just raise up your hand, just go ahead, go ahead. One moment longer. One moment. Look at how many sinners we got among us today. I mean, seriously. And for those of you who wouldn't raise your hand, just couldn't raise your hand, we want to give you a hand for being so good. It's amazing. It's incredible, really. Now, the reason he says this is because that's all of us. So he says, in the midst of that, live such good lives among the pagans, the people who are not Christian. Though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may say you're crazy and they call you the problem. What you think and what you believe, it may drive them crazy. Though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And here's what Peter was saying. How you behave can make what you believe more believable. He says, this is a vision for what Christian communities are supposed to be like. He said, people on the outside should be able to look in and when they see our lives, when they see how we talk to each other, interact with each other, love each other, serve each other, when they look at our marriages, they don't see perfect marriages and they don't see us pretending to have perfect marriages, but they see marriages where people are working through the junk and doing their best to love each other. They're seeing parents who are trying to raise children based on a vision that is greater for their lives than even what they've got for themselves. 
When they look in and they see how we forgive people and the joy and the peace that we have, even in the worst of times, Peter says that's how the world's supposed to look in and find us. We're salt that makes them thirsty. We're light that shows them the path. We're, we're like great smelling perfume. Or cologne. I, love, I love cologne, I love perfume, I love them both. And, and, and when I come across a great one, I don't care to ask male or female, what in the world are you wearing? I called a good friend of mine about a year ago. I said, listen, it's gonna be a weird question. Don't take it offensive, but what perfume does your wife wear? I'm telling you, it's amazing. I'm not saying she's amazing, I, no. I'm saying that, that's incredible. I was out on the beach last week. I was walking, me and Allison basically were the only people on the beach. And just out of nowhere, it was like, it was like, it was like a Gulf Stream. And I was like, that's, that's, that's amazing. And I'm looking for people. I knew it wasn't me and I, it wasn't Allison. And I was like, what is that? He said, that's how people are supposed to be a Christian. When they come across your life, it's like, that is so good. That is so different. That is so radical. That, that's, not, that's not antagonistic. That's attractive. Not looking at Christians as a bunch of mumbling, groaning, complaining, glasses half empty, the world's going to end any day type of people. But we're stars shining at night. We're a voice of hope. And so he says, submit yourselves. In, in this same context, what it means to be Christian, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Wow, that's interesting. Whether to the emperor, that's even more interesting because of Nero and what he was doing at that point. You think, you think you have problems with who's in office? You think you have problems with who's gotten elected? You think you've got problems with who controls which house? Even to the emperor as a supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those to do right. It's like, wow, this is, this is you, really? You want us to do this, Peter? Yeah. For it is God's will that by doing, talk to me, good. You should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. There may be an antagonistic group of people out there towards faith. And there may even be a growing antagonism towards faith. But there is an antidote, Peter says. There is a solution. And it's not by raising our voice. It's not by being a collective voter block. It is not by lobbying. And it's not by posting, it is by doing good. That when we put our walk where our walk should be, and our talk is what our talk should be, over time, Peter says, you begin to silence the talk of ignorant people. They begin to realize these people, they're our best friends. How can, the best friends I have in my life are Christian. The best employees that I have in my life are Christian. I, I, I can't get up and talk about the best people I know are the most honest people. The best marriages that I know of are Christian. Let me tell you, those Christian kids, are you kidding me? The best kids I know, they're raised by Christians. Peter says that's the way it should be. Jesus said it first. Let them see your good works and they will glorify your fathers in heaven. And so he, he says, this is, this is how we move forward. This is how, we, this is how we're Christian. And then he says something interesting about freedom. He says, so live as free people. Live as free people. We're free. So this is very personal for us. Live as free people. But okay, well, what does living as free people mean? People who have rights, what does that mean? But do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. And there he is. You've got rights, but you better make sure you've got responsibility. Don't use your freedom as an excuse to sin. Paul would say the same thing in Galatians chapter five. He would say, don't use your freedom as a license to sin. Don't do it. Don't, don't champion the grace of God and, and say to yourself, well, the grace of God lets me do whatever I wanna do and God will forgive me for it and God loves me for it. He says, no. That's when you have rights but no responsibility. Freedom ends up destroying you. Think about this. Most things that enslave us started as an expression of freedom. Some of us grew up real legalistically in church and we were told, you know, you can't, can't wear this and 
can't eat that and you can't drink this and can't go there and can't listen to that and you can't watch that. And then we matured in our faith and we found out, well, that's not exactly true. And we got free. (laughs) We found our freedom. But I think we can all think of stories and perhaps in our own lives when we didn't manage the freedom well. We didn't manage our freedom with responsibility. And our freedom ended up mastering us. It's a person who says, hey, I'm free to drink whatever I want to drink. Yeah, and then it goes too far. I can eat whatever I want to eat, and then it goes too far. I can say whatever I want to say, and then it goes too far. I can wear whatever I want to wear, but then it goes too far. I can watch whatever I want to watch, but then it goes too far. We can all be misled by freedom. When you have rights, but no responsibility. Liberty ends up destroying liberty. So he says, he ends it here. He says, show then proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. And I'm thinking they were like, okay, show proper respect to everyone, check. Everybody's made in the image of God. I don't have the right to be unkind or withhold grace or mercy from anybody, okay, check. Love the family of God, that means love being a part of the church. You're a part of the church, you're part of a family. So love it, be involved in it, be active in it, be present with it. Love the family of believers, fear God, because when you fear God, you'll say no to some things you wanna say yes to that you shouldn't say yes to, and when you fear God, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll do what you're supposed to do even when you don't wanna do it. And then, again, he comes back to the fact, honor the emperor, and they're like, really? Now, I'm thankful to be an American, and I'm thankful for my rights. I think you're thankful for your rights. But while I was away, I just, I just began to write down some things, and, and I, I wanted to rededicate my life in front of you to being more responsible. And I want us to be responsible as a church, because I'm telling you, In this election year and next year in the primary, there are gonna be lots of opportunities for us just to go completely nuts as Christians. There's gonna be ample opportunities for us to cash in our influence at the altar of politics and government. And it's a big deal. So I think as we're grateful on this holiday for our Bill of Rights, I think we should think about as Christians adopting a Bill of Responsibility. And here am I. And you can have your own, but I think these are good, good places to start. I will do what is right even when I have the right to do otherwise. I think, I think that's a good responsibility for every Christian. I will do what is right even when I have the right to do otherwise. I'm not going to take my cues about what is right and wrong from culture or government or from laws. I'm going to take my understanding of right and wrong from God. So I'm going to do what is right even when I have the right to do otherwise. I'm going to care more about what's moral, just not what's legal. And so as the consciousness of our nation changes, I don't want the consciousness of my faith to change. And I don't want it to change for you and I don't want it to change for us as a church. So that's my responsibility and I think it needs to be your responsibility as well. I will do what is just, not what I can justify. Every injustice throughout history has been justified. Every group who has been mistreated Every group who has been systematically targeted, every group in history that's experienced injustice, it was justified. What did God say? Here's what I require of you. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. What does it mean to pursue justice? Here's what it means. When I see someone in need, when I see someone being abused, when I see someone mistreated, when I see someone being treated the way that I wouldn't want to be treated nor the people that I love most to be treated, I am compelled to do something about it. That I want to be a voice for the voiceless. I want to lend power to the powerless. I want to try to right what is wrong, whatever that might mean. I want to do my best to help. I wanna do what is just, not what I can justify. I will forgive those who wrong me. Those in my home, outside my home, at work. I'm gonna let it go, I'm not gonna keep score, I'm not gonna be easily offended. I'm not gonna hold a grudge. That, I can be responsible for that. I will seek to bless my enemies. People who oppose me ideologically or politically. People who are just, I'm not on the same page with for whatever reason. 
I'm going to seek the opportunity to bless them because that's what Jesus said to do. I will speak the truth, but never without grace. Yes, let's tell the truth. Yes, please, let's tell the truth. But oh my Lord, please let us more tell the truth with grace. We've been telling the truth as a church for the past 50 years. Look at the numbers. It didn't help. It just wasn't the fact that we told the truth. It was how we told the truth. And we got to get back to speaking the truth in love. And we have to learn to do this, some of us, all over again. Some of you, you grew up and you think if the preacher isn't hateful and you think if he isn't mean, he's not taking a stand and he's not telling the truth. And I'm afraid that's why people feel the way they do about the local church. I will pray for those who are under my care and in authority over me. You know, you'll complain less about your leaders when you pray more for them. Woo! Feel that? It's like getting hit in the gut with a Roman candle. Serious. You know, it's harder to be mad at your spouse when you pray for your spouse, pray with your spouse. You know, it's hard to be married. You know, hard to be, you know, mad at the people you work with when you're, you know, praying for the people you work with. How often are you praying for people who's under your care and how often are you praying for people who's in authority over you? That's our Christian responsibility, whether we agree or not, like them, their politics or not. I will use my words to make a difference rather than make a point. That's what, that's my responsibility. Anybody could say it. Listen, why are you posting that on Twitter? You're not gonna change anybody's mind. You have 21 followers. Why are you putting that on Facebook? Everybody you're friends with, they're your cousin. They agree with you. You're not changing anybody's mind, but let me tell you what a lot of Christians are doing. They're forfeiting their influence to make points. I'm telling you, I've never been so disturbed with some leaders in the Christian church and people who self-profess to speak for Christians. Dear God, help us. There's some people out there with a microphone and with a large following, I do not under God want them ever to speak for me as a Jesus follower because it doesn't sound a lot like Jesus. And the church needs to get back to what does it mean to be Christian? Not what does it mean to support this person or that person or to be pro this or anti that, to be this party or that party, to get back to say what does it mean to follow Jesus now, here, in this world, what does it mean? That's what we gotta get back to. I will seek to diffuse conflict rather than ignite it. That's what Christians do, we're peacemakers. And Jesus said, blessed are you when you make the peace. Don't stir the pot. I will seek first the kingdom of God in my life, family, friendships, and finances. That's what I'm responsible. I'm able to do that. I wanna make sure that Jesus is the most important thing to me. That's a struggle every day. Depending on what day of the week it is, it's a struggle. I, I wanna do my best to make Jesus the, the most important thing in my family. I wanna figure out what that means as a dad. I wanna figure out what that means as a husband. I left this morning and Shepherd was only one open, uh, only one awake and I went in there, I laid open his Bible and I said, only if you want to, only if you want to. But here's a great story about what Jesus did for someone. It was in Matthew chapter eight. I said, I would love for you to read this and let's talk about it later. I don't know if you did or not, but I gotta figure this out. How, do, how, how can I put faith as the number one priority of our family? Not the extracurriculars, not, not all the other things competing for our time and energy. My friendships, I love to have fun. I love to hang out. I, I, I love that. But what does it look like for me to seek first in all my friendships? This idea of the kingdom of God and even in my, my financial world. And then finally, I will do my best to love you the way that God in Christ has loved me. That I can be responsible to do my best. We are gonna have opportunities to speak. We're gonna have opportunities to express opinions and ideas and we should. Being Christian does not mean that you do not have a point of view and being Christian does not mean that you have to forfeit your opinion. Doesn't mean that you're not involved. 
being Christian does mean some things as you do those things. We are responsible to love other people the way that God in Christ has loved us. There have been times when I made choices that I'm sure God was like, seriously? I've been on the wrong side of God many times, but he's never given me the cold shoulder. He's never been passive aggressive. He's never taken a public shot at me. He's never made me the object of a cheap shot or a joke. He never stereotyped me and he never maligned me. He never got together with a whole group of people said, let me tell you about What does it mean to be Christian in America? And I think we need to do the hard work of figuring it out. And I think we can because we are the hope of not only the nation, but the church is the hope of the world. And it really doesn't matter. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall and people come in office and people leave office. But at the end of the day, it is the body of Christ that has the opportunity to change the world. That we rise above the values of this world. Citizens of a kingdom, not of this world. Our identity wrapped in our relationship to our heavenly father. We need to be people who are responsible responsible husbands, responsible wives, responsible sons and daughters, responsible single men and responsible single women, responsible citizens. Yes, let's be grateful for our rights, but please, oh please, let us all champion personal responsibility. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Heavenly Father, speak to us. Show us in the way that only you can, where we have embraced rights and freedom without responsibility. Show us where we're flirting with irresponsibility and God just help us to put it out there in front of you, knowing that you'll forgive and give grace and God help us to pick up the mantle of responsibility. Help us to figure out what it means to follow you. God, even if following you makes us a bad member of our political party. Even if sometimes we feel like we are a person without a club that we belong to, God, let us get this right. So with our heads bowed, our eyes closed, would you just take a moment and ask God to speak into your heart what he needs to say to you in this moment.